Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, April 8th, 2018, on the basis of John 20, verses 19 through 31. It feels a little bit different than it did a week ago, doesn't it? If you haven't picked up on this yet, Easter is kind of a big deal for Christianity. In fact, the whole reason that Christians started getting together on Sunday mornings, did you know this? It's because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday morning. And so Easter Sunday is kind of the Sunday of all Sundays, hands down the biggest day of the year. Seven days later, kind of feels a little bit different, doesn't it? A few more empty seats in the room. Not quite as much juice behind the music today. The smell of Easter breakfast is not wafting through the air. Even our beautiful Easter lilies, they still smell good, but they've started to wilt just a little bit. Even around your house this morning, things might have felt just a little bit different. That fancy Easter outfit is back in the closet. All of the Easter baskets have been located successfully, and maybe quite a bit of the candy has already been eaten that green Easter grass inside of those baskets, well, that's maybe the one thing that hasn't changed at all because if, if your house is anything like mine, that stuff is on the floor and on the carpet and everywhere else, at least until the 4th of July every year, it seems. And so maybe, maybe that's the one thing that's the same. But aside from that, aside from that, everything feels a little bit different. And if you ask me, that's perfectly fine because it makes today a very good day to answer a very important question. And that question is this. Does Easter still hold up? Seven days later, once all the excitement has died down, when we're not maybe just getting caught up in the emotion of it all, when we can kind of look at things from a cold and almost dispassionate point of view, when it's not the Sunday of all Sundays, when it's just another ordinary forgettable, monotonous day in your life, maybe even when it's the worst day that you have ever had. Does Easter still hold up? It's a good question for us to ask today, also because of the man who is kind of the center of attention in these verses that are in front of us from the Gospel of John. One of Jesus' 12 disciples, his name is Thomas. What's interesting about Thomas is that we actually share something very important with him. Thomas first experienced Easter the way that we experience Easter. In other words, on that first Easter Sunday morning, as was the case with us, Thomas wasn't around. Now, in the verses that come before these, we learn that it was Peter and John who frantically ran out to the tomb bright and early on Easter Sunday morning to see with their own eyes that it was, in fact, empty. It was Mary Magdalene who was sobbing uncontrollably just outside that grave until Jesus stood in front of her and spoke with her. It was the rest of Jesus' disciples who were trembling with fear behind locked doors, afraid of what the Jewish leaders might do to them when all of a sudden Jesus stood among them. But in all of that, there was no Thomas. No Thomas experience with Easter went something like this. At some point during the week that followed that first Easter Sunday, the other disciples came to Thomas and they said, We have seen the Lord. 
And when they did, Thomas wasn't frantically searching. He wasn't sobbing uncontrollably. He wasn't trembling fearfully. No, he was able, just as we are able to do today, to sort of take a step back and in a very cold and objective way, just kind of analyze things. What should I make of this claim? Does it really hold up? So what did Thomas do? Well, this is where Thomas earns his reputation. We call him Doubting Thomas. Maybe instead we should call him Condition-Making Thomas. Term-setting Thomas. I know that's a little bit more of a mouthful, but it's probably a little bit more accurate. What was Thomas going to make of this claim? Well, he set some very clear, very specific terms, some very specific conditions under which he would believe it. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. In other words, I'll believe... If. It's good for us to consider Thomas this morning because, like I said, we experience Easter in the very same way that he did. And unfortunately, we're all too prone, just as he was, to define our terms and to set the conditions under which we're, we're going to fully buy into this whole Jesus thing. I probably don't need to tell you that for some people, the conditions and the terms are exactly as they were for Thomas. These are people who maybe say, the only things I'm going to believe are things that I see with my own two eyes. This blind faith thing, it might work well for other people, but I will only believe the things for which I have evidence and proof. Plenty of people set terms like that. But those aren't the only terms, the only conditions people set. In fact, believing in Jesus in a lot of ways is it's kind of like buying a new car. It's really fun to, to walk around from the outside and look at it, maybe even kick the tires. Very easy for us to agree to take a test drive, but, but to really drive it off the lot, to really make it our own, so often we want the terms to be just right. And so we might say, Sure, I'm willing to buy into this whole Christianity thing if, if it doesn't mean that I need to believe something that might make me unpopular. As long as I don't need to, to ever tell someone that something they believe is wrong or, or tell, something that, tell someone that if they don't have faith in Jesus as their Savior, there's, there's just no hope of eternal life in heaven for them. We might be tempted to say, I, I'm willing to make my faith, a higher priority in my life if, if it's convenient. As long as it doesn't affect my calendar, as long as it doesn't affect my bottom line, as long as I can still do whatever I want with my time and with my money. We might say, I'm willing to be more connected, more active in my relationship at my church if, if it means I don't need to let go of anything if no one is going to tell me how I need to live, if no one is going to try and make me feel bad for something that I'm doing. I'm willing to go all in on this Jesus thing if, if I get something out of it. As long as it makes me feel good, as long as it makes me happy, as long as it, it means that things are going to start going my way. If everyone knew 
the conditions we set, the terms that we define, what would be the adjective that people put out in the front of our names like they do with doubting Thomas? And the sad thing is that these, these terms we define, these conditions that we set, it's not like they're the fine print at the bottom of some contract, just kind of insignificant details or legalese. If there's something that is keeping us from fully embracing faith in Jesus, then it's a pretty good sign that it's a major, major part of our life. In fact, it's probably the thing that we've convinced ourselves that we cannot live without. It's the kind of thing that we schedule around, that we sacrifice for, that we will stop at nothing to pursue. In fact, it's the kind of thing that if it is allowed to rule us unchecked, eventually it will just consume us and destroy us. Here's the sad irony. It's so easy for us to think that we want to define the terms for our faith in Jesus, but so often those terms end up defining us, just as they did for doubting Thomas. And so thankfully, just seven days after he rose from the dead, Jesus made it very clear that, no, he was going to be the one who would define the terms for our faith. Now, when we look at what Jesus did here with doubting Thomas, we might almost be a little bit confused. It seems like Jesus is doing two contradictory things. On the one hand, he seems to completely concede to the conditions that Thomas set, right? He let, lets Thomas see, he, let, he invites Thomas to touch, but then on the other hand, in the very next breath, he seems to scold him a little bit. You know, Thomas, you really should have believed without needing to see, so, so which one of those is really the case? Well, we need to realize that Jesus is setting the terms for faith from two different perspectives. First of all, from the perspective of Thomas. Yes, it does seem as though Jesus is completely conceding to the conditions that Thomas had set, and yet there's a whole lot more going on here. Maybe it was the fact that when Jesus appeared in the room, his first words were once again, peace be with you. Maybe it was the fact that when Jesus showed up, he actually recited all of Thomas's conditions rather than waiting for Thomas to recite them to him and made it clear that his purpose in doing so was not to scold or chide or publicly embarrass him. Maybe it was simply the fact that even in his risen and glorified state, Jesus still bore the marks of his crucifixion making it very clear that his death on the cross was not just some accidental hiccup, and now that it was behind us, we can get back on track and back according to the plan. No, this was the plan all along. Jesus came to die to pay for our sins. Whatever it was, the end result is that Thomas ended up with a faith that was far bigger and far better than the one that he had tried to define. The first interesting thing to note is that it seems as though he didn't actually follow through with the conditions that he had set. Jesus invites him to come and touch his side and his hands, but it doesn't say that Thomas actually did. Most people think that he didn't. And instead, when he expresses his faith in Jesus, he doesn't just say, oh good, you're alive. Phew, I was beginning to get worried there. No, he says, my Lord and my God. He goes from doubting Thomas to giving one of the fullest and richest confessions of faith that any of Jesus' disciples ever gave. Thomas is saying, 
Jesus, you are everything that you claim to be. You are everything that I need you to be. You are my God. You are my maker, my provider, my protector. You are my savior, my redeemer. You are my only source of joy and satisfaction and hope in this world. Thomas had wanted to define the terms for his faith, but the terms that Jesus ended up defining for him were much bigger and much better. That's looking at it from one perspective. The other perspective is from our perspective. Jesus is also defining the terms for our faith. And that's why Jesus said to Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Realize that Jesus isn't advocating for a blind and baseless faith here. He is saying that eventually the time will come when people will not see with their own eyes. Jesus was not going to continue to appear to people in person forever. And so that's why it was so important for Jesus to actually appear to Thomas and the rest of his disciples. Not so much for their sake, but for ours. Jesus knew that we would need to believe in something that we had not seen with our own eyes, rather relying on the testimony of those who had. In fact, the Apostle John, in the very next sentence, basically says the exact same thing. This seems to be why John chose this episode to sort of build up to the very apex, the high point and conclusion of his entire gospel. He wraps up by saying to his readers, look, These things that I'm writing about, we have all seen. In fact, we saw a whole lot more than this. But these are written that you may believe. Even though you haven't seen them with your own eyes, you can rely on the eyewitness testimony of those who have. Now realize, first of all, that for those who set the conditions of needing to see, needing evidence for themselves, this more than meets their demand. Nobody lives believing in only those things that they have seen with their own eyes. In fact, here's a quick and obvious example. This past week, our nation remembered the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., And of course, when that happens, all kinds of things are said about Martin Luther King Jr., his lasting legacy on our nation, whether or not his dream for our nation has been achieved or whether there's still a long way to go. All kinds of things are said, but I don't know about you, there's one thing that I didn't hear. I didn't hear a single person stand up and say, you know what, I think it's all a hoax. I don't think this man ever really lived and I don't think he was really assassinated. Why? Because I wasn't there to see it with my own eyes. No, we trust not just things that we've seen with our own eyes. We trust what others have seen with their eyes and tell us about. And when it comes to believing in Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, he has provided us with reason to believe that is just as certain as that. Well, now, what about all those other objections and those terms that we set and those conditions that we define? Well, John has more to say. He says, these are written down, these things that we've seen, so that you may believe, and not just believe that they happened, but that by believing, you may have life in his name. Life in Jesus' name is what comes through believing in Jesus. Before I compared believing in Jesus to buying a new car, 
Now maybe think of it in terms of buying a new house. Those terms that we set, those conditions that we define, it's kind of like we're standing outside and we're saying, the only way I'm going in, the only way I'm setting my foot across the threshold of that door is if I can bring in what I'm holding along with me. And if I can't, if I can't, then I'm just going to stay outside. John is telling us that this house (laughs) that we're considering going into, this house has Jesus' name on it. Jesus is the architect. Jesus is the builder. By going into this house, we are coming under Jesus' roof. By going into this house, we are going into the place where all of the blessings that Jesus wants us to have are to be found. And do you think that maybe, just maybe, those blessings that Jesus wants us to have, that Jesus has defined are best for us, do you think that maybe, just maybe, those blessings are a little bit bigger and a little bit better than whatever it is that we might be holding on to that's keeping us at arm's length? Friends, inside that house, there is a joy that none of life's circumstances can possibly take away. There is a hope that all the sadness and all the sorrow in all the world cannot touch. There is a peace that even our most awful sins cannot chip away at. There is an inheritance in that house, an eternal riches that will never perish spoil, or fade. We might think we wanted to define the terms for our own faith, but the terms that Jesus defines are so much bigger, so much better. And that's why seven days later, it's okay that it feels a little bit different. It's okay when it's not the Sunday of all Sundays. It's okay when it's just another ordinary forgettable day, or maybe even the worst day of our lives Because even then, Easter still holds up. It's okay that it feels a little bit different today. Because the second Jesus stepped foot out that grave, things would never be the same again. Amen. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.